Episode number blankety blank 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 of We Talk Comics. Clever. That's clever. 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 We, we don't know when we're putting this up. This one is one that we're throwing in the can so that we can put up when we're on an off week and continue with content, have something fun. Uh, it, it does have a title. It's called Son of Urban Legends. No, it's Grandson of Urban Legends. Oh, it's called Grandson of Urban Legends. Right, right, or, right. or perhaps Son of Son of... <laughs> I like that. Son of Son of Urban Legends. Urban Legends, issue 181, we did an Urban Legends uh, episode uh, for comic books. And then we did a, a number 81, we did an Urban Legends. 181, we did an Urban Legends. And this one we're probably putting up before 281, uh, way before, I'm guessing. But we don't know exactly when, but it is. Uh, that was Urban Legends in comic books. Son of Urban Legends. This is Son of Son of Son of Son of <laughs> Urban Legends. And uh, why don't we ever give any... What about Bride of Urban Legends? <laughs> Why didn't we ever... What, what's wrong with us? Well, a lot. All right, I'm Mo, the Crown Prince of Charisma. With me, King of the Casters, Chief Defender of the Faith, Mr. Brett Podcast. Don't forget Vengeance Seeker and Manphibian. <laughs> Shall back to the last urgent, Urban Legends. And once again, also the man with no nickname. He is Chris Bestie. Hello. <laughs> or he is Ed McMahon. <laughs> Ed McMahon. Yes. Yes. All right. We have some great, some great ones. Uh, we're recording this. Well, let's tell the truth. We're recording this right after we recorded the last one because we had so much fun doing it. And uh, and right as we're going off the air, I'm noticing some incredibly great uh, urban legends that I wanted to bring up. So we just thought we'd keep going and record this right now. We're going to open it up, how this works. If you did not listen to the other episodes and you should have, how this works is I'm going to list off the urban legend, and then Brett and Chris will discuss if they think it's true or not. They're kind of kind of guess, and we are not keeping score. Uh, for those of you at home, please, no betting. <laughs> comic book urban legend. Rob Liefeld once drew a comic book in landscape style without being asked, leading to the book having to be cut and paste to look like a normal book. I feel like that's true. Uh, I think it has to be true. It makes <laughs> sense with the, his his rogue aesthetic. Uh, this is true. Um, the The series that it was on was Hawk and Dove miniseries. Hmm. Carl Kiesel inked it, and the miniseries became a really big hit for DC, which is and led to a Hawk and Dove ongoing series. Think about that. Hawk and Dove was a really big hit. I'm, I mean, right well, there, that seems like an urban legend. Probably because of Rob Liefeld, because I mean, at, you know, in those early days, I mean, he was big. That's true. That's true. And this would have been, I'm guessing, pretty damn early. So, uh, anyways, here's the quote on it. I think this is Carl Kiesel. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, without consulting his editors, Rob drew all of his sequences and landscape. Well, actually, I don't think it's anybody's 
quote, but uh, I, you'd have to turn the book, comic book to read it. When asked by the baffled and shocked editor why he had done this, Rob said that's how it had been drawn. The only other time this dimension had been shown because they were in, a, in, in, a, in the chaos dimension. Anchor Carl Kiesel had to rotate the panels and paste them together into a new flow as part of his inking job. The letter column to issue 5 contains an oblique reference to this incident, mentioning that Rob showed something to an editor who thought he'd seen everything. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, tremendous. You gotta love Rob. Or Uh, hate him. Yeah, and here's and uh, Carl Kiesel was asked about this, and he, Carl Kiesel said, "Yes, Rob did draw the entire Chaos Dimension sequence sidescape, sideways or landscape style." So, uh, man, talk about creating a lot of extra work for your for your uh, for your freaking inker. He did this without consulting anyone. I'm sure Rob saw this as cool and different and exciting, but the editor Mike Carlin was not quite as thrilled. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of having to turn a comic sideways to read a story, especially not in the middle of an issue. It pulls you out of the story by calling far too much attention to itself. It can be done. There was a great issue with the Moore Bassett uh, Swamp thing that actually had you turn the comic completely around as you read it. There was an amazing use of the device. And John Byrne did a fantastic story in the negative zone where it worked well. But generally, I think it's best to award, avoid. Uh, anyways, now, by the time we reached the last issue of the miniseries... Go, so? Pardon me? Do, do you guys like reading the landscape style? Um... I know X-Men had a series like that, and I I personally object to it. I really don't like reading that way. I'm I, I mean, as such a, as such a, as a digital, as a largely digital reader, I love it. A digital, like, in that format, it's great, right? Um, but when we're when using a hard copy, a traditional comic book, no, I don't like it at all. It's weird, because I, I, I wanted to, I felt like... Um, there was a new Warriors book that was like that, and may have been by uh, by Liefeld, but I but I can't remember specifically. It's been so long since I've read that stuff. Anyways, uh, apparently a part of the reason why they think this was done, according to Carl Kiesel, was also that at that point, Rob Liefeld was already getting other offers elsewhere, and he just was not. He had he didn't care at all about the series and about the quality of the series. He was going to move on to a, a bigger project and make more money. So uh, to be fair, it was Hawk and Dove. <laughs> and there is no question that uh, that he could probably make more money than than a Hawk and Dove series. <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, here's a comic book urban legend that I think is right up Chris's alley. Simon Beasley once drew a penis on Lobo's arm on a comic book cover. Absolutely true. Now the interesting thing is, is that, and I know, I know I've done, I've read about this, but I, I want to say that he didn't, but it just really looks like he did. You know what? You are completely right. Because uh, so, Wizard asked him in 1994, how did that penis get on Lobo's arm? And Beasley said, well, that is funny because it wasn't a penis. The editor, Dan Rassler, was really worried about it. But it wasn't a penis. It was just a fold in the elbow on the back of the arm. And it just happened to look like a penis. That's funny, isn't it? And Wizard asked, was there a lot of flack over it? And, and Beasley said, no. What's the big deal about a penis? I mean, we've all got them. <laughs> Wizard goes, and it was for mature readers. And Beasley says, yeah. But I'm quite sure that even juveniles have got them. 
I know that's not the point, but it wasn't something that I was trying to sneak in there. It wasn't juvenile in me trying to stir things up. It just looked like a penis. That's, yes, because, and, and, I, and I mean, I've referenced it a lot overall, like j just this concept of, of what looks like a penis on its elbow. But no, because I, I, I remember being surprised because Bisley by himself, I mean, he's, he's a crazy guy. Yes. And, and so I would not have been surprised in the early days to find out that it was intentional. So I was more surprised to find out that it actually that it wasn't, wasn't intentional. Which is why when I said it was right up Chris's alley and I said, is this true? And Chris is like, yes. I'm like, well, that would have been my response too. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, and, no. I mean, easily sneak stuff in all over the place. Not usually penises, but <laughs> I, it's, it would be in character. Of course, and, it would be in character for him to lie about it too. But you know, when, when, when somebody noticed. But I mean, as and but as a as a hiding of genitalia in a comic book uh, page, it is a brilliant example and and deserves you know to to be to be shown around for that. That's right. That's right. There's been plenty of them, but uh, yes. All right. Uh, Batman and Superman began to team up because of inflation. True. Uh, yeah, I think I think that seems it. It had to do with page counts. When they reduced the page count to save money, they realized they couldn't have two separate stories, so they had to combine, only have one story, and have both characters star. Yeah, basically, for 15 cents, they had 96 pages. And you have to keep in mind, 15 cents was a lot to spend on a comic back then, even for 96 pages. Uh, and the first, first of their books was World's Best Comics. It debuted as World's Best Comics, issue number one, and then it became World's Finest. Uh, and it was 13 years. It also was a huge seller because the characters had been around, and they teamed together in JSA as a team, but a one-on-one -on -one, uh grouping of Batman and Superman didn't happen for the first 13 years of the character's existence. So, um, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing to think of. Nothing? <laughs> Nothing, guys? Not really. I, I, I no. don't know. That one just... I, don't I, know. Mean, it it, I find it kind of amazing that there was any reluctance to, you know, create a combined sort, sort of universe and, like, why it seems so natural to team your characters up, but it does. And nowadays you can't think of it because it, it happens so often. But then it was not uh, not a common thing back then. So you guys have heard of Elvis, right? Um, yeah, he was Costello. He... Pardon me, Costello. Well, you've heard of him too, right? How about Elvis Presley? He he was he was made famous by Lilo and Stitch. So yes, yes, Elvis. Was he Presley, in the Thunderbolts? Elvis Presley was not. But <laughs> For forty here's, issues. Here's the connection. Here's the connection. You'll remember Elvis Presley had this famous uh, hairstyle. What do you call it? A pompadour? Is that what they're called? Pompadour. Pompadour. That's what I said. It's a pompadour. <laughs> I remember think this. Pompadour might be something else, but uh... anyways, he got that that hairstyle from a comic book character. Specifically, Captain Marvel Jr. Hmm. Mm. Now he would be known as Shazam Jr., wouldn't he? 
Yeah, yeah, probably. Ah, J two maybe. J two, yeah. Who knows what he's known as anymore? Um, he was CM two for a while. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go with false. Yeah, if it's a character, uh, the only character I can think of he could really steal it from would be Hammerhead from Spider Man, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Hammerhead is a little bit more slicked back, whereas this was the real Pompidou. And it is actually true. You guys have to keep in mind, in the 1940s, just how incredibly popular Captain Marvel and his family was. And uh, yes, uh, one of the fans of it was Elvis Presley, and he did base his hairstyle on, uh, on Captain Marvel Jr. And if you see a picture of Captain Marvel Jr. from... Um, <laughs> if you see a picture of Captain Marvel Jr. from that era, you will definitely see it. Like, it'd be unquestionable. The musical landscape of today would be totally different Different if you went with Uncle Dudley instead. <laughs> uh. Well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, and, and I'm sure that uh, Lilo and Stitch would have been totally different, too. Yeah. Is that your favorite Disney cartoon or something, Brent? No, but it is my son's, so, you know. Is, is his favorite? Yep. Lilo Stitch. Okay, here's one for Brett. And you probably, like you said, you've read these before, so you might know this one. Because um, I'm not sure how old this is, but like I say, they keep coming. The G.I. Joe series was partially based on a previous Marvel pitch Larry Hammond made to Marvel. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it does seem like the kind of thing that Larry Hammond would do. Uh, I would, I believe it's true. I know it's true, and I'm trying to come up with uh, what team it was, but I, I'm completely blanking. Oh, it was a a, uh, a Shield series he was proposing. Essentially, yeah, it was a lot of holdovers, he said, from the Fury Force concept that I'd been developing for Marvel at the time. Fury Force was Fury, Nick Fury Force. was It was a spinoff from S.H.I.E.L.D. The whole idea of a secret base under a motor pool, for instance. I even had a Snake Eyes type character who didn't speak, had his face covered in a cowl, and was a mysterious assassin type. He carried a pump shotgun and a commando knife in his boot and was actually inspired by the uh, something character in the, in the you know, I can't even pronounce the name, um, character Pahukatawa. Wolf Who Stands in Water character in the old Yancey Derringer TV series. So, yeah, you can actually, it, it, on here they have, and you can look this up, the whole team, Origins for Fury Force, and they have, like, Hawk showing him as, as like, if he had been, Hawk would have been Nick Fury, uh, Scarlet would have been Scarlet, and that type of thing. But, yeah, it's actually kind of... Uh, Kind of amazing. Uh, the famous silent issue of G.I. Joe was originally meant to have dialogue in it, but it was left out due to some sort of error. I want to say that's true as well. I feel, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, because I, I, I know there's something with that with that uh, issue, but and and so that could could be right. False, and we got that information from uh, Larry Hammond himself. That's good memory, Chris. That is false. Ah, yes. I, I knew there was something with it, but, but I couldn't. They were behind it. schedule and just decided, well, we can get a couple extra days if we just don't have a dialogue-free episode. 
considered a, a yeah we should have a dialogue free podcast sometime to see how that goes uh the entire concept of, of a comic book without any dialogue was novel at the time and it's considered a classic now but rumors have swirled around since it debuted because the idea was so weird that it was not intentional that the dialogue was lost in appearing error, error but that was not true According to Hama, I wanted to see if I could do a story that was a real, complete story, beginning, middle, end, conflict, characterization, action, solid resolution without birds or without balloons or captions or sound effects. I tried to do it again, as a matter of fact, with G, with the Joe Yearbook Three story. All right, Brett. GI Joe is one of, in the list of your favorite series of all time. Where would GI Joe rank? Where would GI Joe rank? Um, well. It, that's tough. I mean, it's in my list of favorite series. It probably wouldn't rank very high because there's a lot of really, really awful issues. But from a concept of like, as a kid, it, that is one of those formative series. So it ranks extremely high in the formative. The series. nostalgia factor for it might be the highest of any series for you. Bar none. Yeah, pretty much yeah. bar none. Yeah. And the very best issues, I'm sure, are still some of your favorite issues ever. Well, I mean, the, the best story arcs, like like in the through the 40s and and into 50 and stuff like that. I mean, there's some fantastic comics in there. Some great plotting, you know, just the just the arc overall for a for a toy based comic. I mean, for a property. I mean, it's amazing that that he was able to get away with that stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Now, Brett, do you fall on the Serpenter side of things, or do you like Cobra Commander better? I do like Cobra Commander better. I I actually really love what when they in the in those story arcs the way they kind of, he kind of humanized Cobra Commander because I mean at the beginning and I think so many people have that animated series Cobra Commander that bumbling um, screechy guy in the in their head and i like the fact that in the comics especially he is really smart i mean i didn't like serpentor in the early days because because it is comic booky ridiculous but at the same time like once he came out i i started to appreciate him more but i i definitely prefer cobra commander it's his look always like when they introduced him his look just went yeah, that's a leader. I like this dude. Uh, okay. I thought he actually provided a challenge for the Joes. Well, no doubt. And, and I love, in the comic book, I love the fact that they made him, you know, not a bad guy for a while. Like, basically, he left being Cobra Commander for a while. And then and then when they reintroduced him, you know, the, the basic reasoning for him coming back was because he just realized, no, I actually like being a bad guy. So... I'm good, just going to be a bad guy, and it's just like, that's great. I just, I just like the pure honesty of like, no, you know, really, I'm good with being the bad guy. You know, I always thought like you're right that the uh, the cartoon guy, he he kind of um, he he filters your view of the comic book Cobra Commander, but it's just that I thought Serpentor was awesome. I'm like, it's like Cobra Commander is great. He's a challenge, but Serpentor could actually take down Joe. That's that's how it always came across to me. That's why I just. That's like Serpentor. I thought he had a cool look too. Oh, well, the reason I'm asking this, I just wanted to make, sh- I just wanted to hammer home what a big fan you are to get back to the, uh, the to the urban legends. Unless you had something you quickly wanted to say there, Brett. No, no, Serpentor looks very cool. There is no question about that. Okay. 
How about this? Now, we've mentioned Larry Hama, and that's because Larry Hama is the G.I. Joe writer, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he created... He created so many of them, their backstory, I mean, the, you know, everything that that is good about G.I. Joe pretty much came from Larry Hama. Like, you have that guy, sometimes that person, you go, that is the blank writer, you know? And and that's what you say about, about Larry Hama, he is the G.I. Joe writer. How about the, the urban legend that one of the G.I. Joes was based on Larry Hama himself? Uh, yeah, I feel like, I'm pretty sure that's true. I feel like it was, uh, Quick Kick. Quick Kick, you say? Interesting. Wasn't, uh, I thought he was, uh, I think it, it is true, but not Quick Kick. I, was there an Eskimo Joe? Oh, um, he wasn't a Joe, but uh, he was introduced to uh, Quinn, the yeah, Eskimo. Yeah, he, he wasn't a true Joe, but he, he he allied himself with the team. Yeah, I mean, he was introduced in, in issue two as a bad guy kind of thing, but who had, who had like, a, a stronger moral compass than most, and then wound up becoming an ally later. Okay, now, here's here's this. I'm just going to read this out to you. One of the G.I. Joes was based on Larry Hamm himself. Status, True. For years, one of the coolest things about G.I. Joe toys was how much effort and detail Larry Hammer went into the backstory and origin of each member of the team. Hammer would give characters real names that were puns of names or people he knew, even going so far as to take names off the Vietnam War Memorial. Hammer himself was an Army veteran, as a tribute to the fallen soldiers. He eventually dropped this practice when requests became too numerous. However, in 1987, the ultimate honor that Hasbro could give to Hama came about when they made him a G.I. Joe. As Hama recounts, this was a lot of fun. They actually sent me a, the sculptor to take photos of me. He's the same guy that did a lot of the holograms for credit cards. He's a miniaturist sculptor. He, dove in, he did the dove for the Visa card. Once you sort of reduce a likeness to that size, a lot is lost. It was rather flattering. Here's a picture of the figure. Um, as far as I can tell, the figure was just Larry Hama. Oh. And I'm not sure it was ever released publicly. So, yeah, but there is a picture of it out there for, for people. So, yes, uh, I'd say that's true, but with a caveat. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, there's so many good ones here. I have to. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, oh. oh, here's here's some that are. Interesting, because these ones are like real mine. Anyways, uh, electronic ankle bracelet monitors were cr- created based on a Spider-Man comic strip. Wow, that seems uh, that seems crazy. Uh, but you know, I I don't know why it wouldn't be true. They create a lot of stuff because of Star Trek, so why not create it because of Spider-Man? Yeah, sure. Why not? Give <laughs> Larry true. Lieber a, a shout out and say it's true. It is true. Absolutely. A New Mexico District Court judge, Jack Love, read a late 70s Spider-Man comic strip in the newspaper where a villain, Kingpin, was tracking Spider-Man via an electronic tracking bracelet based on Spider-Man's wrists. Love theorized that such a thing would work and they created it for criminals. How about this? Frank Miller coined the term Dark, the Dark Knight. Hmm. 
I have to say that, that that sounds fishy. I think he made use of it, but there has to be a night reference before that point. Yeah, it, it feels like it. You, I want to instantly. I want to say true, but but it seems like it can't be true. So I am going to go with false. You are correct, and it is false. Uh, this statement is not as odd as you might think. He popularized the term. Uh, yeah. It wasn't popular until the Dark Knight Returns. But Batman would be referred to as the Dark Knight Detective before that. Yeah, yeah, that's right, of course. Okay, um, let's see. I'm trying to see if the first uh, appearance or the first mention of it was in Detective Comics number 40. Well, yeah, so a, a little before um, before Frank Miller got a hold of it. Yeah, yeah. In comic book time, sure. <laughs> yeah, a caption in panel four reads, A moment later, Batman the Dark Knight and Robin the Boy Wonder. All right. Green Lantern lost the cover of his own comic book to his dog. Absolutely true. Yeah, I, I will agree, true. Chris, you jumped right on this. Are you familiar with this story? I um not the story itself. Um, but I remembered his dog actually had a huge fan base at one point. And, this is um, true. Like, they, they, they introduced the dog because of the popular po character. Yeah, they introduced the dog because of the popularity of Rin Tin Tin. And <laughs> he became so popular that he took, eventually he would become, yeah, Streak was the name of the character. And he ended up being on the cover of several of the uh, of the um, and and it also caused them to launch the title Rex the Wonder Dog. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Green Lantern. Um, I love me some Green Lantern. And that's that's the Alan Ladd Green Lantern. But uh, I don't think anybody can deny that uh, Green Lantern. Great. Uh, also, let's face it. Um, bit of a loser. You mean Alan Scott? <laughs> oh, Alan Scott. What did I say? Alan Ladd? Alan Ladd, yeah. Sorry, you know what? Alan Ladd was the original name of the character. That's oh, the, and then they changed right. it to Alan Scott. That's a that's a trivia that I know. Well, there you go. So so if that comes up as a as an urban legend, then then we're we're set up. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. This is this is one. Uh, Marvel had a special insert in an issue of the Fantastic Four. Because they irked the Nixon administration. Hmm. I want it to be true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it again. It, it sounds kind of true because I mean Nixon was a little bit uh, um, crazy, one might say, and and so it seems that it's something that might could happen. So I'm. It's too logical. I, I have to say false, just on the basis of it makes too much sense. It's too possible to be true. Unfortunately, Chris, mm. it's true. It's Fantastic <laughs> Four, issue 128. There was a puzzling four-page glossy insert in the middle of the issue for no added, added reason. Roy Thomas explains in the letter column of the issue, but first I'll give you some backstory of what happened. Uh, of course, I'm reading this off of comic book resources where you can find all these comic book legends, so I'll just mention that once again. Uh, Roy Thomas explained it. Uh, in the early 1970s, inflation was a mess and Captain America and costs were skyrocketing. With books released the month of Fantastic 
with books released the month of Fantastic Four number 116, Marvel raised the prices from 15 cents to 25 cents, a huge increase at the time. But Marvel's answer was to make the 25 cent books giant size. Sadly, cost restraints were such that Marvel had to make the book normal size after just one month, but a price of 20 cents. Meanwhile, though, the Nixon administration had implemented a price freeze for the nation. So when the wage and price control board heard that Marvel had essentially raised price. Charged, or raised prices by charging 20 cents for 32 pages, they were upset. After things got hashed out, there was no big to do, and Marvel ended up uh, offered up was essentially their form of a community service, offering a free full color glossy insert in Marvel one or Fantastic Four 128. That's I mean it's again it's not the reasons that you would think of, but but I mean but totally totally true. <laughs> I'm actually disappointed now that I know the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's not nearly as cool as it sounded like it would be, right? But, but it is interesting. How about this one? Here's one that's interesting. Kenneth Johnson wanted the Hulk to be red on the TV show. Kenneth Johnson was the uh, creator of the Incredible Hulk TV show. Hmm. Um. Let's see. I'm going with false just because um, I know the original casting was the guy who was Jaws in the James Bond films. And I know they changed that. So I can't imagine them changing two things as major as that. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to agree with Chris. Okay. This is um, an interview, and then he also talked about this based on the commentary to the uh, to the first season, uh, and he's asked uh, uh, about big part of the stuff you talk about includes the decision making that went into how much of the comic book source material you retain for the TV show. Like you had the idea to make him red, Johnson. Yeah, I called Stanley and I said, "Man, what's the logic of green? Is he the envious Hulk? Is he green with envy or jealousy? The color of rage is red. I was also pushing for it because it's a real human color. You know, people get flushed with anger." They get red. That makes sense. But the Hulk turns green. And Stan told me, well, actually, he started out gray. And then our printer came to us and said, anyways, not the printer, not the publisher, but the printer. And said, we could do a pretty consistent green. So we decided to go with green. I said, Stan, that's not really very organic. But that was the battle I could not win. At least I got to change Bruce Banner's name to David. But I couldn't make the Hulk red because it was just too iconic in the comic books. All right, then. Okay, we talk about that name. He got to make it David instead of Bruce. That's the next urban legend. Bruce Banner's name was changed in the Incredible Hulk TV series because the show's creator thought that the name sounded too homosexual. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sure, true. I mean, I I was wrong before, but, uh, but let's hope that I'm right this time. False. Ah, this, damn. This one I really See, wanted I'm to answer. I'm agreeing with Chris now, and it's just like, damn. Uh, again, he was asked again. He's the question. Uh, he's asked about is in the commentary. You changed your distinction for alter, alliterative, or you indicated your dis- disinclination for alliterative comic book names. Can you clear it up once and for all why you chose to change the name of the show? Because the rumor has circled for decades that you that folks thought Bruce was a gay name. And uh, Johnson said, I don't recall feeling that way at the time because Bruce Wayne was a pretty straight guy. 
But it was more the alliteration that bothered me. The Lois Lane, Clark Kent, that sort of thing. I always kept trying to get away from the comic book origins as I possibly could. I mean, virtually the only thing I kept from the comic book was gamma rays and green and metamorphosis. And everything else was made up out of what I wanted to present in the real world. And again, he put somebody into the story whose name is Bruce Banner, and it just immediately starts to sound comic booky. I was very anxious to attract the adult audience, because I knew we could not have a hit show if we just had kids. <laughs> oh, I wish that was true, too. So much. Because uh, that would be very 70s. Very yes. 70s TV. Uh, Do you guys like uh, alliteration? I, I actually love when comic books have, you know, the Peter Parker and the Lois Lane and the, oh, just about anyone, the, the, the rhythmic. I, I just love that sound. In real life, my day-to-day life, I love to make, use alliteration. I love to make jokes about it and just, it's great. In comic books, it does start to come across very comic booky, though. Yeah, there is no question about that. But I, I do like it as well. Okay, um, Scott Lobdell was fired from Alpha Flight over controversy regarding North Star coming out. Um, I, I think that's true. I'm just going with true because I like the concept of Scott Lobdell getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> Good point there. <laughs> well, he was fired regardless. Uh, because uh, in 1992, it caused quite a stir when uh, Alpha Flight number 106 team member Northstar officially came out. But it wasn't due to that. That's false. Uh, the writer who wrote the issue, Scott Bedell, was removed from the books a few months later during the middle of a storyline leading to rumors that Marvel was displeased with the, over the, him over the hoopla of Northstar's coming out. A few years back, Lobdell dispelled the rumors explaining the circumstances behind his his, uh, departure from Alpha Flight. According to Lobdell, do you want me to read this? Sure. Okay. Essentially, the outing of North Star came about because Bobby Chase was the editor at the time and was a stickler to schedule. And she wanted an inventory story in the draw just in case. I pitched her five story ideas and one of them was North Star coming out of the closet. In my pitch at the time... I essentially said the problem with North, with writing Northstar is that he's always been pretty much of an, an asshole. Rude to people, always angry at the world. Now, this may or may not get me in a world of trouble, but my feeling was, yeah, I guess I would be angry at the world too if I was spending all my time sa- saving it, and yet I couldn't be myself because people wouldn't accept me. And people that I'm, I'm saving to boot. So I felt... <laughs> I felt the way to start to bring Gene Paul away from his angry young man mode was to let him be himself. Let him tell the world, this is who I am. Deal with it. Um, let's see. In the 1970s, Marvel had designated first page letterer. Had a designated first page letterer. First page letterer. I mean, my... Hmm. My instinct would be false but so i'm going to go with true because i've had bad luck uh, a bad string lately <laughs> i'm going with true because i mean who'd make up a rumor like that i mean it's just so unnecessary they did <laughs> they had a guy who littered just the first page of all their comic books gasper saladino Oh, you know, that's funny because uh, when I was, when I had poked around through the pictures of something 
else. I feel like it was Speedball. Um, and I saw that Gaspar, Gaspar Saladino was uh, listed as one of the one of the people on there. So we know we know he he did the uh, the work on the Speedball first appearance. That's true. That's true. How about this? Grant Morrison took an old French character out of the public domain and made him an X Men character. Oh, I would say for sure that's true. That sounds hey, exactly Grant right. Mis- uh, Morrison and Bizarre. True. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. The character Phantomos, Phantomos, Phantomos was a a, a uh, character that uh, he made into Phantom X, and essentially is that same character. And they took him out of obscurity and and made him an X Men character. Uh, Grant Morrison probably knows more. I'd say he probably knows more characters that are in public domain than I know characters. Oh this yeah, I mean, he's he must be the master at just searching and finding that stuff and and just keeping it keeping like a list of that kind of thing oh i'm sure that that character isn't exactly all that obscure though i mean there was a movie yeah i know but it was public domain oh the character yeah the character's public domain but i wouldn't call him an obscure character he's still popular in uh in europe uh well i mean maybe but if he was public domain um i don't know how popular it was but um all right. DC licensed characters for use in alcoholic drink mixes. Hmm. Uh, that seems that seems crazy. It seems against what they would uh, what they would say, but or what they would want. But you know, I'm going to say true. I'm going to say false, but I do think the product exists. But it was recalled. Essentially, Chris, you just nailed it. Yeah, I mean, it's, that is false, uh, though, and DC, in fact, uh, opposed the trademark of, of something uh, regarding kryptonite mm. in a duck. Oh, that makes sense. Marvel has never intended to publish the final chapter to the Last Galactic Story serial that ran in Epic Magazine Illustrated. I, yeah, I think that's true, because they, they haven't, and, and I don't think they will. Yeah, I'm. I'm going with. The, I'm agreeing with Brett, but I don't remember that story at all. So I totally remember the story because it's a Byrne story. Yes, it is. The last Galactic story ran as a ser- uh, by John Byrne ran as a serial in the magazine format. Uh, this is basically true, is what they say. The only problem is the series ended with issue 34, so parts of the serial were never published. Now, here's where basically the, it comes from, the basically part. The story was set to be collected once it was finished, but since it did not finish, Marvel is not going to collect it. Here's Burn, what Byrne said on it. We ran nine episodes in Epic Illustrated, and it still wasn't enough to save the book, Byrne remembers. So it was canceled. Then, of course, there was essentially nowhere else to put it. I kept promising myself one of these days I'd finish the story in the Fantastic Four. But I left the book, and I felt it was no longer my per, uh, prerogative to deal with those characters since they weren't my characters anymore. Marvel, in one of their Marvel Universe entries, declared the story to be imaginary and said, well, geez, I I said to myself, well, geez, I don't work on imaginary stories. (laughs) 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 Or in those days, I didn't. So it languished in the comic book oblivion or wherever the comic book stories that never get done go to. Uh, Also, though, he has put up on his his, uh, frequently asked questions board how he was going to end the series if you ever read it and you'd like to know. So you can find that on John Byrne's website. 
Yeah, that's right. Burn Robotics has a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, Marvel published a game tie-in years after the company that made the game was defunct. Uh, true. That is true. Yeah, I feel like I've done some. Re- yeah, I think I think it. Well, I forget which one. I feel like when we were digging through some of the video game stuff that we were looking up, the this came up. It did. I I actually was going to give you guys bonus points if you could say what it was because it was something we definitely should you should be able to say. Yeah. What it was. Oh man, what what is it? I'm I'm gonna. Oh, you can just see it, like. I'm gonna kick myself when you when you say it. Oh, you are. You because, definitely are. Because I know that it's it's. Oh yeah, but I but I can't. Now West can't you just fix yourself? Oh, it is along, Quest Probe, of course. Right behind an Atari Force. Quest Probe. Oh, you guys definitely should have had that. Yeah, that Quest Probe because we because I I think we did that on the video game. Yes, we episode. did. We talked about that, or at some point I can't remember if it was a video game episode or what else, but we definitely got the idea. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, is Brainiac the best or second best uh, Superman villain of all time? Um. You know, I, I love him, but uh, but I am going to say second best. But no question, he's in the top two, right? Oh, oh, for sure, yeah. Okay. I mean, I prefer him to Lex Luthor, but but I do think that... Uh, Luthor's Luthor, though. Luthor's Luthor, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I know exactly what you mean. How about this? How about this, then? Here's a one on Brainiac. Uh, DC got the idea from Brainiac from a make-your-own-computer kit. Hmm. <laughs> Again, I I'm gonna I'm going to go with true, uh, because that because that does seem like a pretty viable way to get that. I am going with false, just on the basis of I don't think he was a robot initially. Okay, status false. In the mid 1950s, Edmund Berkeley developed an educational toy that was advertised as a computer, while essentially a rotary switch construction set. It was called Geniac, which stood for Genius Almost Automated Computer. Automatic Computer. Uh, simple electronic brain machines and how to make them. Um, this is pretty crazy, actually. I, I mean, I could go on here, but because uh, but, shortly after, Brainiac shows up. But uh, <laughs> uh, it is not true. It is just a coincidence, essentially. Um Hmm. Lex Luthor went bald due to an artist mistake. Again, I feel like that's true. I'm, uh, I'm going with false. Hmm, Chris and I see again. I, my biggest problem right now is that I'm letting, I'm I'm jumping in ahead of Chris, so I'm not I'm not letting Chris, uh, you know, set the bar. <laughs> well, I think the other thing is now you're 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 guessing based not on what you think, but on what you think. Is you're trying to not guess on whether or not you think something's plausible, but you're guessing more on like, well, if it's plausible, then it's probably not true. Yeah, and yeah. you know, you're, you're you've you've gotten in your own head here. That's right. That's and, right. And, and you're wrong again. Um, it is true, or you know, you're right again. Oh, you're wrong. 
were you right or what did you say? I, it doesn't I matter. True. I said true. It, it is true. It, uh, fairly soon into his career as the artist for Superman, the amount of work demanded for on Joe Schuster, uh, so he or there was a great amount of work demanded on Joe Schuster, so he hired a studio to ghost draw for him. Interesting side effect though of this though is that occasionally certain nuances were missed in the transition from one artist to another. One such detail was Lex Luthor's hair. In then they have this incredible picture of Lex Luthor in Superman issue number four, drawn by Pal Cassidy, Lex Luthor with hair, um, and then shortly afterwards without it due to essentially that miscommunication between the ghost or ghost artists. Uh, and Leo Nowak was the artist who first drew him as bald. Wow. I mean, it felt like I, I did think that was true. That was one of those things that's uh, collected in this, uh, in my memory of random factoids. <laughs> and, and one of the things you have to remember is they took this then and made it into one of the lamest and stupidest reasons somebody became evil ever that Lex Luthor and uh, Clark Kent were uh, schoolmates who, uh, and they were good friends, and they were working on a, 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 a experiment in school. And working with these, they were presenting some sort of like Lex Luthor presenting all these these chemicals and this thing for for the class, and and he creates this uh, basically like this explosion. And Clark Kent leaves a Superboy or leaves and comes back a Superboy and like wishes him out. But somehow in all of this, the like the the explosion and the the speed or whatever caused Lex Luthor to lo- lose his hair and never come back. And he blamed. <laughs> Superboy for it, and therefore <laughs> hated him and wanted to destroy him. That's awesome. That's <laughs> true. Yes, uh, I mean that's that is fantastic. I love the idea that the speed. Plus, look, <laughs> look. If you are, let's face it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. If you're bald, you have no chance in life. So, uh, <laughs> as as Lex Luthor proved, you know many times. Throughout the rest of the uh, of the series, by you yeah. know not becoming rich and not becoming president and and you know all those things. That's what I call it. The, the artist made a mistake. It's t- I call it turning a negative into a positive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, last one we're going to do here. Apparently, the change. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, Joe Kelly did not originally intend for his Zod to be Russian. I don't know if anybody remembers this. When Joe Kelly introduced the character, he was Russian. Yeah, I don't remember him being it Russian. A, so. It was a big crossover called Emperor Joker, with a new character named Ignition uh, debuted, and Ignition made reference to a uh, mysterious master, and that was uh, Zod. And then during the Our World at War crossover, Zod was introduced, ruler of a former Russian state named Pokolistan, which sounds Russian to me. Um. I'm purely guessing here. I'm going to guess false. Uh, yeah, just just because I don't want to be wrong, I'm going Brett. No, it's true. Uh, <laughs> Joe Kelly said it. Zod was a while back, so forgive me if I don't remember the whole thing, but Ignition was definitely Zod's boy from the beginning, and the gag was that as a young man, Zod found him and rescued him. So despite the fact that he was infinitely more powerful than Zod, Ignition was loyal to him. Eventually, the loyalty would have to be eroded, of course. My original take for Zod was not the cosmonaut sun business, even though I do like the symmetry of it. 
It was going to be Kal-El from the, from the Silver Age Krypton, which we had always intended to be real. Uh, editors note, another crossover during <laughs> Kelly's run on the title involved a clip visit by Clark and Lois to Silver Age Krypton. Uh, and then he said he was going to be corrupted by Zod, whom Superman executed. I want Superman to suffer for that violation of his own principles, and giving him an evil twin who had been tainted because of Superman's fall from grace seems like a cool way to go with it. And in other words, while he says that's true, I don't know what the hell that had to do with, with him being Russian. All I know is that it says it's true, and that this is why I didn't read Joe Kelly's action comics. Uh, <laughs> or Superman, or any of that, because I read that. Oh, and I'm like, I want to avoid. It sounds like a mess to me. <laughs> I'm like, holy crap. Continuity mess. All right, I think it we're over. It kind of makes like uh, the Morrison's action comics make sense after listening well, to that. When I listen to that, I think he's the Straczynski of Superman. On, on <laughs> Straczynski on Spider Man, he's the Straczynski. Uh, he's the, he, that's what Joe Kelly seems to have done to action comics. Of course. Maybe somebody likes it, they'll let us know. If they can, they can do it on Twitter or our website or emails. Uh, they can just uh, they can call us, uh, you know, uh, smoke signals, <laughs> get a hold of us that way, you know, whatever. But yeah, we are OET, aren't we, guys? I, I think that's that's totally fair. But again, another fine episode of uh, of comic book urban legends. Yes, I, I actually can't wait for uh, the L. Uh, the elder, I don't know. The elder, the ancient descendant of uh, urban legends. The, the elderly grandma of, of comic books. No, I think a, ancient yeah. descendant of urban legends will be an excellent episode. <laughs> Good night, guys. Good night.